Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Empowered Living, Volume 3, with a message titled, Walking as Children of Light. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, verse 7 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. If you've done even a small amount of study in the Bible, you will know that the Bible often contrasts light from darkness. For instance, right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 2, we're told of a chaotic and purposeless creation. And then in describing the earth as it once was, the text says, and darkness was over the face of the deep. You know, some Bible teachers and theologians have wondered whether in those days there was some kind of an atmospheric condition which prevented any light from penetrating to the surface of the earth. Such, says Genesis, was once the state of things here. But God was about to take this chaotic and howling wasteland and reshape the earth, making it not only fit for life, but the center stage on which he would put a creature created in his own image as the central actor to this drama. And so God speaks to the earth. Verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light. Light overcomes the darkness, and in consequence, the stage is set for human beings to exist and play their role as image bearers of God. But God has no shortage of power. He merely speaks, and the earth is full of light. The book of John, the fourth of the four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, begins with a powerful affirmation. Jesus is so great, says John, that it is true to say that all things were made through him. John is affirming the beginnings of the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Spirit were actively involved in the creation. And when the Father created, John tells us he did so through the agency of the Son. All things were created through Jesus. But John is still not done. Speaking of Jesus, he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John is playing on the theme of light and darkness. Jesus comes into a world of darkness. The image bearers of God have rebelled against their creator and are overcome with moral darkness. They've become ignorant of their creator and furthermore, they're ignorant of the purpose their creator has made them for. They are darkness. But Jesus comes into this world of darkness as light and in his presence, the darkness retreats. So then not only does the Bible treat darkness as a physical property, it also treats it as a moral condition of the life without God. You know, we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 5, and we've noticed that it's a chapter about the uniqueness of the Christian lifestyle. Be imitators of God, it says. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us. And then in order to illustrate that, our passage has shown us that when it comes to, to sex, don't imitate the culture. Ephesian culture was known for its sensuality. Christians were not allowed even a hint of this lifestyle to be named among them. They were to be associated with Jesus and not with the broader cultural values or Greek ways of thinking and acting. And with that in mind, Paul now gives a philosophical foundation for this kind of a radical rejection of the wider cultural values. So let's read our text. It's Ephesians 5, 7 to 14. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 
for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know, Paul's opening statement refers back to what he said earlier. Know this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is given to covetousness, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The pure inherit the kingdom. However, this kind of sensual idolatry does not. Then having said that, Paul adds, don't become partners with them. The them he has in mind are what he has called the sons of disobedience. He's speaking of those who have not submitted their wills to the will of God in Christ. But what does he mean when he says, don't be partners? And taken to an extreme, I suppose we might argue that it means have no association with them. You know, some Christians have understood these words in this way, and in consequence, they formed into Christian communes trying to separate from the people of the world. But if that were the case, how would Christians ever win people to Christ? And Paul himself was constantly interacting with non-believers. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, he writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul does not think Christians should go out of the world, but rather interact with the world. And so when he forbids partnership with the world, he doesn't forbid interaction with the world. The word partnership means one who shares a possession or a relationship. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul commands that believers not be yoked together with unbelievers. See, one of the things Paul has in mind is the agreement that one might have between idolatry and faith in the one and true living God. Don't partner, he says, in anything that would cause you to compromise your faith or deny your faith or even in some small area to make concessions that your faith will not allow you to make. Don't partner at any level when your faith is at stake. And this is surely what Paul has in mind in Ephesians 5 verse 7. And by the way, this is what God has in mind for every believer today. When you start to make concessions, when you give away that which belongs to the Lord, and when you partner with darkness, you invite darkness as your partner. See, those who have entrusted their lives to Christ will want to think about that. Let's say, for instance, that your occupation or your work or whatever it is causes you to, in some fashion, deny your faith. So what should you do? Well, there's a story told of a Christian from the early days of our faith, and he approached his bishop about his role in the guilds, in which he was being asked to pour out libations to Caesar. He said, look, I have to make a living, to which the bishop responded, do you? And that's the question. What is it that you have to do? Answer, you have to live in the light as Christ is in the light. If you're a politician and your party asks you to support a bill that is at odds with your faith, don't partner with them in darkness. If you're in a company that demands that you act in a way that's not ethical, don't partner with them. If you're in a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend who who wants sexual favors with dating, don't partner with them. At essence, you'll have to make a decision, won't you? Are you a child of light or are you willing to be a child of darkness? And for those of us who think that we can walk in the light and occasionally stray into the world of darkness, well, well, we need to keep reading our text. 
See, after making the general statement or the general command that we find here, that we're not to partner with them, Paul then explains why he's given the command. So listen up. Here's why you never partner with darkness. And I'm again reading verses 8 to 10. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So let's start with that, shall we? At one time you were darkness. Now previously, back in Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3, Paul has described our pre-conversion life and he called it dead in sin, meaning dead to God and alive only to sin. He spoke of walking in sin, in which the pre-converted heart only responds to sin. Sin like death locked us in, and we were incapable of righteousness. But we were capable of following the world and the dictates of our flesh, and we were captive to the evil designs of Satan. Remember, says Paul, that's who you once were. See, every once in a while, I'll speak with someone who came to Christ as a child, and they'll say, you know, this kind of language only makes sense when there's a dramatic conversion that would have been there, you know, when the Ephesian church was formed. Now, of course, it is true that adult conversions, at least in our eyes, seem so much more dramatic than, let's say, a seven-year-old who bends the knee at the bedside with, you know, with his dad and surrenders himself or herself, body, soul, and spirit into the loving hands of Jesus. You know, and then years pass by. By now, the, the grown woman or man can't remember life outside of Christ. You know, whatever rebellion there was, it was for a short time only. But if that's you, think again. In Psalm 51, verse 4, it was David who said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And if you're a childhood convert to Christ, understand that you were born with a deep underlying hatred of God, and in mercy, Christ intervened in your life so early that the savage effects of later sins were spared of you. See, every believer will say, I was once darkness, but I'm now the light in the Lord. And if that's so, I have a divine obligation. My walk, my lifestyle must reflect that I walk in the light. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage you spoke about that day. And every time I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. As a believer, I have no choice. Whenever darkness invites me to walk in it, I must reject that call. And even if it should be that I should sin, I must then, when I return to my sanity, reject the darkness, confess my sins, confess that God's ways are right, and appeal to Him for the mercy that comes from the cross. 
There's something remarkable that I think we shouldn't miss about Ephesians 5 verse 8. See, that passage doesn't say you were once in darkness. Notice it says, at one time you were darkness. It's not that you lived in an especially sensual city in which, you know, you were influenced to participate in darkness. No, it's not that you lived in the darkness, you were darkness. Notice how that kind of reasoning goes against the reasoning that we find in our culture. You know, in our culture, we're constantly told that it is not us, it's the system. You know, we have bad parents, we, we have a corrupt government, racism lies deeply embedded in the system. We've been robbed by others of our self-esteem. You know, it was at the Nuremberg trials where the Nazi perpetrators of evil were tried. The constant defense of the Nazi atrocities that were done by the men on trial was that they were only acting under orders. They said they had no choice. You know, in the environment of Nazi Germany, how were they to resist? In short, they were saying, it was not I, it was the system. But the West said that even so, every man is a moral actor on the stage of life, regardless of the system, even if it's immoral and cruel, even so, you are morally responsible for your actions. So were they right? Yeah, they were. Systems can be deeply evil, but even that does not absolve every single one of us from moral culpability in what we do. We're always accountable for our actions. I know that's not popular to hear today, but it's absolutely necessary that we hear it. If you think otherwise, all you become is a victim with the words, you know, I couldn't help myself. I was stuck in the system. See, that kind of thinking is endemic. It's not me, it's my culture. But Christians have been taught a different use of language. It's not just that I live in a dark world. By the way, that is a problem. The Bible makes much of the power of the world to impact us. But the real problem is that I was darkness. I embraced the darkness. I became identified with darkness. There was no distinction to be made between me and darkness. Any confession of Christ that does not make this confession responsibility for my own sin. See, if it's not that, it's not genuine conversion. See, that's it. Augustine said that the place where conversion begins is when we finally agree with God. And where's that agreement found? When we finally say, I'm full of sin, I am darkness. And God says, finally, we agree on something. Yes, you embrace darkness. But after conversion, we embrace the light. This is the radical nature of our conversion. Our heart has been changed. Once we embrace darkness, but now we embrace light. Our desires, our affections, our loves, our hates, all these are radically altered. And hence, says Paul, once you understand that, you understand that now you have an obligation to walk as children of light. Why would that be so difficult? I mean, after all, we are now light. See, I had mentioned Augustine, and I do so again. Prior to his conversion, Augustine had lived with a particular woman, and the relationship was long gone. And furthermore, Augustine's sexual morality before his conversion was anything but Christian. But then he was gloriously converted. He was translated from darkness to light. And one day, as he's walking down a given street, on the other side of the street is a woman with whom he had had a sexual affair. She waved at him wildly. Augustine, she said, it is I. He continued to walk on the other side of the street. Ah, he said, but it is not I. And of course, it was not him. But for us, what does it mean to walk as a child of light? Well, notice carefully that Paul gives three fruit of light. Let's consider each one of them in turn. First, the fruit of light is found in all that is good. 
What would Paul have in mind when he talks about living in a way that's good? See, in order to understand that, a good rule of Bible study is that we discover how the word good is used in the letter of Ephesians. So Ephesians 2.10, we read, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And I think that's what Paul has in mind. Goodness consists of goodness that is expressed to others in works that bring good into the lives of others. That's one of the reasons why Christians, wherever they've gone, have built schools and hospitals. They've worked to bring about good into the lives of others. That's also why Christians have worked to feed the hungry. Jesus commanded us to bring a a cup of cold water to the one who's thirsty. Goodness consists of acts done to minister to the needs of others. Next, Paul says that the fruit of light is what is right. See, this refers to what is righteous. Do things that are morally upright. And then he adds that the fruit of light consists in what is true. Christians are to avoid all forms of deceit and lying, to be known as the people of truth. That is, make sure that you're living an ethical life. Now, having told us what it is to walk in light, doing you know good works, committing ourselves to righteous acts, speaking only truth, well, then Paul adds, try to discern what pleases the Lord. The verb to discern means to put to the test. It means to examine something, and then, as a result of that examination, make your decision. I think it is to be a basic Christian impulse that says, before I act, I'm going to examine. See, to act outside of discernment is contrary to the life of light. It's darkness. It's saying, you know, I just simply felt like it. You know, I sometimes am shocked to find Christians who blindly accept what the culture does, and they justify it by saying, well, We're living in the 21st century, after all. You can't ask me to accept values that this world has rejected. See, but at the heart of Christian decision-making is the question, if I act in this way, will my Savior Jesus look at me and smile? Will he nod his head and say, well done, I approve? See, I'm saying that this is what we should do with all of life. We should remember the Lord's commands. Do good to those who persecute you. Forgive those who sin against you. Don't look at a woman with lust. Read the Sermon on the Mount with interest, and not just that. Read all the New Testament commands and say to God, this is what you have commanded me, and I know that when I obey you, I am pleasing to you. But we also know that there are a host of decisions and actions that we make in our lives that might not be covered by a direct command. See, at these moments, we're not called upon to guess what we should do. Rather, we are to be so word-saturated that we get a feel for all things that bring glory to God. So please notice that everything that I've said are positive commands. Do this, walk in the light, as a child of the light. But as we all know, it's not enough just to give positive commands. Let me illustrate that. Imagine you wanted to get into shape. It would be very good to learn, you know, a proper regimen of exercise, a good diet, good health care, but it's not enough, is it? It's important to understand that if you smoke, if you do drugs, if you eat certain kinds of foods and so forth, that your health is going to deteriorate. In other words, it just can't be positive commands. There are negative ones as well. If you're going to walk in the light, you'll have to avoid the darkness. So look again at verses 11 to 14. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, 
For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Start with verse 11. Not only are we to avoid the works of darkness, we're to expose the works of darkness. So what does it mean? Well, it must mean that believers are to identify to one another what kinds of actions are displeasing to God. To expose means that we're going to have to talk about it. That is, we're going to have to, among ourselves, as God's people, identify that which is not good or that which is bad or evil, along with that which is unrighteous, that which is false, that which is a lie. In short, we're going to have to critique the culture as well as beware of the the temptations that we face. As an example, in the previous passage, Paul has identified sexual immorality. You know, I find there's a confusion among some Christians. Is it wrong to have sex with my fiancé, for instance? And the answer is, yeah, it's wrong. It's to embrace darkness. Awake, sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Furthermore, Paul spoke about coarse joking, crude talk, and, and language that's laden with a perverse mindset. See, when we expose darkness, we need to provide examples of language the Lord does not approve of. And once we know that, we need instruction on how to walk. Expose darkness, live in the light. How about you? Are you a child of light? Or have you, for so long now, been fooling yourself? You think you can follow Christ while you embrace darkness? You cannot. Awake, sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. Thanks, John. Let me ask you, What do you think are the consequences of an unexamined life? Yeah. Well, the consequence that's most obvious before all of us is that people tend to just drift along. And they also tend not to connect the dots to the things that happened in the past, what's happening now and what's being planned in the future. And so we begin to live purposeless lives, uh, aimless lives. And uh, therefore, we also begin to lead immoral lives because... We don't see what our lives are for, and so we tend to live in the moment only uh, without sensing what God has for us in the future. So uh, all of these things, I think, diminish us. Uh, They make us less than what God created us to be, and they also create in a great many people a deep sense of sadness because they don't know what they're for. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, Volume 3, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, don't forget to ask for the Time of Your Life 5 Message Bible Teaching Series as our free Bible resource on CD. As you listen along and examine what the Bible has to say about how we use the time you've been given, you'll be equipped and encouraged to make your days matter for eternity. When you request your copy of The Time of Your Life, would you pray for more and more people to access these life-transforming riches in the pages of the Bible? Every day this teaching, verse by verse, reaches out across Canada and around the world on radio and print and online so that all might receive and experience a life filled with purpose. Back to the Bible Canada is so grateful for your support. To order the time of your life or make a gift to support this ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.